Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Latin America, abortion is a particularly fraught topic, with views informed by the region's conservatism and Catholicism. But Argentina just liberalized its abortion laws, a sign of slowly changing attitudes and a reason they may change further. And Ethio Jazz is a classic of melting pot music, international in its history and yet still unmistakably Ethiopian. We examine how it came to be via Jerusalem, brass bands, and the visionary musicologist who brought it to the world's attention. But first... We respect the law. We were good people. The government did this to us. We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens. And you guys did this to us. We want our country back. We have At this hour, our democracy is under unprecedented assault. Unlike anything we've seen in modern times. It was at best a riot, at worst an insurrection, resulting in scenes unlike any in living memory. After days of prodding by President Donald Trump, rioters descended on the Capitol building in Washington yesterday. Congress had gathered for a joint session to certify President-elect Joe Biden's victory. Under the provisions of ESCON Res 1, the Senate will now proceed as a body to the hall of the House. Several Republican lawmakers, such as Ted Cruz, began lodging their expected objections to the tallies. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. But midway through proceedings, representatives were forced to flee from the chamber, ushered into bunkers through underground passageways, ceding the floor to a violent group of Trump supporters. For hours, a tense standoff ensued as rioters posed for pictures in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office and made off with Capitol podiums. And for those hours, Mr. Trump stayed silent. I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege. He eventually issued a video statement telling the rioters to leave, but a condemnation it was not. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. After the building had been cleared, lawmakers returned and carried on with the vote, confirming Mr. Biden early this morning with little further drama. 
and Mr. Trump at last committed to a peaceful transfer of power via a staffer's tweet, even as he continued to insist the election was unfair. Like so much that has happened in the Trump presidency, it's all shocking but not entirely surprising, leaving those on Capitol Hill to survey the damage to a storied building and to American democracy. Now, the sight of an angry mob rampaging through America's legislature, you know, wandering around the Senate floor, breaking into legislators' offices, that's not the sort of thing that's happened before. John Fasman is The Economist's U.S. digital editor. Most Americans think of that sort of thing, if they think of it at all, as the kind of thing that happens in other countries. And I think the, the, the political and psychological fallout from that will last a very long time. It really was a watershed moment for American politics, and not in a good way. And walk us through exactly what happened here. So what happened was that Donald Trump spoke at a rally at around noon on the 6th, and he told his supporters that he would never concede, and he told them to walk to the Capitol and show strength and be strong. Now, what they showed, of course, was a deeply Trumpian facsimile of strength. It was a temper tantrum. And while the joint session of Congress to certify Joe Biden's victory was underway, they overwhelmed Capitol Police and got into the building. The session was adjourned shortly after 2 p.m., I think. The Secret Service whisked away Mike Pence, who was presiding because the vice president is also president of the Senate. Capitol office buildings were evacuated. Members sheltered in place while rioters, to all appearances, ran rampant through the Capitol. And eventually, the riot sort of petered out. They didn't really seem to have a plan or goal beyond that show of petulance that they convinced themselves was strength. And shortly after 8 p.m., the two houses of Congress gaveled back in. And uh, after some lengthy speeches, they did their constitutional duty and certified Joe Biden's win. And there will be big questions about how the rioters managed the breach in the first place. I mean, how did they organize beforehand? And, and were they arrested afterward? Well, the rioters seem to have been far-right Trump supporters. And they organized themselves at least partly using social media. For days leading up to yesterday, they discussed on social media how to sneak guns into D.C., which has strict gun control laws, how to dodge and spread thin the police presence, One of them fantasized about setting up a gallows outside Congress and hanging elected officials. That seems to be how they organized themselves. Were there any arrests? The Capitol Police let a lot of people leave with just a warning. Um, Now, more arrests may follow. The rioters, a lot of them, for reasons that baffle me, took pictures of themselves and can easily be identified. But even so, even if more arrests do follow, to my mind, the difference between the very thin police presence, and the way they treated armed insurrectionists who broke into the Capitol building and terrorized legislators, and the way police treated and prepared for Black Lives Matter protesters this summer in full riot gear and massive physical presence, that difference is really striking. And what about Republicans in in Congress? What do you think the the repercussions will be for them, the ones who supported Mr. Trump's efforts to, to, to question, to overturn the vote? The question of repercussions is really interesting. You know, one reason Republicans lined up behind President Trump's claims of election manipulation, election theft, which I strongly suspect they knew were false, is because they believed the price for not doing so was greater than the price for doing so. They worried that Trump would support a primary challenger to them in 2022 or 2024. That was their concern. Now, Kelly Leffler is one of the two senators who just lost in Georgia, initially said she would object, but after the riots changed her position. I don't think she would have done that if she genuinely believed the election was stolen. 
I suspect the same is true of a lot of the others who backed President Trump's challenges. I suspect they didn't really think that the election was stolen. They thought that it was a smart political move not to get crosswise with President Trump. Now, anyone who cares about the health of American democracy, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, anyone who likes living in a democracy should hope that the senators and congressmen who tried to overturn an election will pay a heavy price. But whether they actually will, you know, I don't know that I'd bet on it. Most of them are from safe seats. What about the Republican Party more generally, though? Will they abandon Trumpism? Does, this, does all of this demonstrate the, the very real costs of Trumpism? The more interesting question is how the Republican Party reacts in toto, because as popular as Trump is with base voters, he's deeply unpopular with the broader electorate. Remember that he entered office with Republicans in control of the White House in both chambers of Congress, and he will leave with Democrats in the same position. The last time that happened, the last time they had that trifecta party switch, was 1892. And the results this year showed that Republicans really can win with women and with non-white voters, with the right candidates. And so it's in the party's interest to broaden its view and leave Trumpism behind. And, you know, even people who seem like staunch allies like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, they want Trump gone too, right? They don't want him to be the 2024 nominee. They want to be the 2024 nominee. But there's a first mover problem. Nobody wants to stick his neck out and get it chopped off. But if nobody moves at all, Trump retains his power, which nobody also really wants. And I would guess that they're hoping some combination of legal and financial trouble post-presidency sort of does him in politically so they won't have to. And, you know, they may be right. They may get lucky. And once again, there is talk of of removing Mr. Trump uh, from office, uh, impeachment, invoking the 25th Amendment and so on. Do you think there will be efforts to remove him? Well, Ilhan Omar, who's a liberal congresswoman from Minnesota, has drawn up articles of impeachment And I know that plenty of people on the left have this fantasy that the riots will lead the scales to drop from Republicans' eyes and the Senate will vote to remove him. But I just don't see that happening. Impeachment, however justified by events, seems like a waste of energy at this point for Democrats. The 25th Amendment is also tricky. And that amendment says that if the vice president and a majority of the cabinet tell congressional leaders in writing that the president can't do his job, then the vice president becomes president. Again, I just don't see a majority of his cabinet doing that. And even notwithstanding that a lot of a lot of President Trump's cabinet is composed of acting officials rather than officially confirmed, and there's a question of whether they can actually vote, I'm sure that an invocation would, would provoke a court challenge. So my guess is that he will just serve out the next two weeks. But scenes like this gravely damage America's standing in the world. I mean, how is America going to credibly promote democracy and the peaceful transfer of power to other countries when one of its two political parties has just shown such contempt for both. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. My pleasure, as always. For a deeper dive into the whirlwind of America's politics and the state of its democracy, listen to our sister show, Checks and Balance. It's out on Friday. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.
In most of Latin America, abortion is either entirely illegal or allowed only to preserve a woman's health or to save her life. But Argentina has just made itself one of the few exceptions. Last week, its Senate passed a law allowing elective abortions for any reason in the first trimester of pregnancy. That kind of shift in one of the region's biggest countries has sparked a far wider debate about abortion, a debate that looks set to intensify when the law comes into effect. For many years, lots of activists in Argentina have been campaigning to change the country's abortion laws. Sarah Burke is our incoming Mexico City bureau chief. They wanted to let women have elective abortion, so abortion for any reason they like in the first few weeks, as opposed to just on very narrow grounds such as rape. So when the new president was elected last year, Alberto Fernandez, he made it a campaign promise. And at just at the end of last year, December the 30th, the Senate passed a law saying that women can terminate their pregnancies within the first 14 weeks for any reason. And so at the end of the year, we saw huge crowds, despite COVID, gathering to celebrate the decision. Some activists say that this is going to be the start of this green wave sweeping the continent. The green wave is so cool because all these campaigners, both in Argentina and further afield across Latin America now, wear green scarves around their necks when they're campaigning for these women's issues. And, and is there evidence of that, that green wave building? Well, to some extent, you know, the decision is definitely promoting discussion across the region. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, after talking after the Argentina vote, suggested that women should be allowed to vote to decide if they can terminate their pregnancies. So that left a crack open in the door. But, you know, elective abortion, allowing women to do it for any reason they like, not having to have a justification, is unlikely to become the norm soon. You know, as many pro-abortion activists as there are in the region, there are as many anti-abortion activists. And they say in Argentina, for example, that this new law violates the constitution. So they're already campaigning and preparing court challenges to the law, which is due to be signed the next couple of days. Now, it's still significant. I mean, Argentina is the fourth most populous country in the region. And so the proportion of women now in Latin America who can get an abortion on elective grounds will treble from 3 to 10%. And so what are the rules like for the other 90% of Latin American women? Well, by global standards, the laws in Latin America are restrictive. You're allowed elective abortion in just a handful of countries. So Cuba, Guyana, Uruguay, for example, in the first trimester only. And a few other countries allow interruption of pregnancy on narrow health grounds. And then there are a few in Central America, such as El Salvador and Nicaragua, that have an absolute ban. And actually very harsh penalties both on women and any doctors who perform or have an abortion. So why do you think there is such strong pushback specifically on the issue of abortion? Well, one thing is that Latin America is a predominantly Catholic region. The Catholic Church historically has had a very strong say institutionalized in what happens in the region. And obviously they teach that life begins at conception. And even where the church may have weakened, evangelicals, say in Brazil, have taken up the anti-abortion cause with equal zeal. Politicians are also reluctant to support the cause, even if a large number of them are women. But that's partly to do with the fact that public opinion actually isn't overwhelmingly in favour of abortion. When it comes to elective abortion, a minority are in favour of it. So a recent poll by Ipsos found that 35% of Argentinians and only 16% of Peruvians thought that a woman should be allowed to terminate early pregnancy without restriction. That figure is over 60% in Western European countries. 
And then in cases where the woman has been a victim of a rape, for example, the, the, the support for abortion rises to almost three quarters in Argentina and 50% in Peru. But, you know, you can see that overwhelmingly public opinion is not in favor of liberalizing abortion. So does that sort of downward pressure mean that fewer women are having abortions across the region? I mean, no. The Latin American number of abortions per thousand women aged 15 to 49 is just below the average. So globally, it's 39 women out of a thousand have an abortion every year. Latin America, that's 32. Um, You can compare that to the US, Canada and Europe, where the race is only 17. Bans don't seem to prevent abortions. What they do, say campaigners, is they make abortion unsafe and they lead to harsh penalties such as prison sentences. You know, these women still have abortions, it's just they have to do it illegally or they have to travel for it. And often that makes it very unsafe. So, for example, in Venezuela, maternal mortality rose by a striking 66% between 2015 and 2016. And the UN reckons about 20% of that could be attributed to unsafe abortions. But even with those, those outcomes becoming apparent, it doesn't sound as if this, this green wave is, is going to, to crash across the region very easily or, or quickly. No, I don't think it will. But there are lots of little openings. I mean, for one thing, it's not a taboo to talk about in many places now. And some countries are considering either expanding their laws or allowing for uh, abortion in limited circumstances. In Peru, which has elections coming up in April, one of the parties, the Purple Party, says it will promote reproductive rights. Chile is due to draw up a new constitution this year, and abortion is likely to be part of the debate. And then there are various cases going through the courts, such as in Colombia, trying to change the criminalization of abortion in the region. So there could be some change, but it will be slow and one step forward and two steps back. Thank you very much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. A growing number of Western musicians are being influenced by a hybrid genre that is both international and inimitably Ethiopian. It blends pentatonic scales, which feature heavily in traditional Ethiopian songs, with the scales that define Western music. And it all started when the former emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, traveled to the Holy Land. The story of Ethio jazz actually began almost a century ago, all the way in Jerusalem. Magdalene Abraha writes about culture for The Economist. When Haile Selassie visited the city of Jerusalem in 1924, he was greeted by massive brass bands. He would later discover that these brass bands were made up of orphaned survivors of the Armenian genocide. And upon a later stage, he would then invite these 40 children to Ethiopia, and they became known as the Arbalajoch. Once the Arbalajoch landed in Ethiopia, it was a significant moment in Ethiopia's musical history, and they completely transformed the country from a nation that was initially surrounded by singular instruments to a nation of big brass bands. Along with them came the band leader Kervok Nebaldian, who went on to compose the Ethiopian national anthem and later became known as the godfather of modern Ethiopian music. How do we get from that to the Ethio jazz that we hear today? The big brass band movement truly evolved from Kervok Nebaldian's nephew, Nezrez Nebaldian. And he also significantly influenced another young man, who we later know as Mulatu Astatka. 
Mulatu Astatka is a major figure within the development of modern Ethiopian music. For many, Mulatu and Ethio jazz are one and the same. Unusual for an African at the time, Astatka would actually travel to North Wales for schooling in the late 50s, and he would eventually move on to Boston and attend Berklee College of Music, becoming the first ever African to do so. He interacted with many jazz musicians, both African and Western, and set about creating a new sound that he would finally call Ethio jazz. Mulatu would return home to Ethiopia in the late 1960s and 70s, in a time where the capital was now known as Swing Addis due to the vibrant and thriving nightlife and music scene. This all came to a crashing end when the communist government, the Derg, overthrew the monarchy and imposed strict curfews on nightlife and music. So how did Ethio jazz get past that period? In the mid-1980s, musicologist and producer Francis Falsetto accidentally stumbled across the music of Mahmoud Ahmed at a party in France. Francis Falsetto made it his mission to go to Ethiopia and discover these sounds to be able to share them with the world. So the next part of the story happens in 1991, when the Derg government was overthrown. This was the moment that Francis Falsetto saw as his window. He could now embark on his mission to share modern Ethiopian music with the world. He would then create the most significant musical releases within modern Ethiopian music, known as Ethiopiques in 1997. Ethiopiques is actually considered to be one of the most significant world music albums ever released, in part because of the amount of songs within these collections, but also in the uniqueness of the sounds. And that has translated towards other music genres, such as hip-hop, other forms of jazz, pop music, and to date, the music has been sampled by the likes of Kanye West, Nas, Damien Marley, and the list truly does go on. For many, Ethiopia is a deeply politicized country, but for the genre of Ethiopian jazz, it looks to go above and beyond that. Magdalene, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.